Now I ask that you would please um, join your hearts to mine as we lift up um, a prayer to God together. O oh Lord, our God, we have assembled this morning in the name of our Lord Jesus, trusting in His promise to us that when we do so, that He is among us by His Spirit. And O oh Holy Father, having been joined to Him by faith, we come before Your throne of grace in this our time of need, and we pray for your help. O oh, Holy Father, we ask that you, in your abundant mercy, your steadfast love would bind up broken hearts in our church, that you would strengthen weak knees. We ask that you would drive division and backbiting far away from us. We pray that you would work in each one of our hearts, O oh God, by your Holy Spirit, such that we would all attain to the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. O oh Father, these are difficult times. This is a storm. But you are with us in the midst of it. And we trust what your servant, the Apostle Paul, teaches us in the book of Romans, that everything that befalls us, your children, will ultimately work together for our good. And though perhaps even in this life, we do not understand and may never see how exactly that comes about, we trust you, Holy Father. We trust that that is true, and we rest in that. Oh God, we pray for the joy of the gospel, the reconciliation, the forgiveness of sins, the hour being seated in the heavenlies with Christ, that all of those things would fill each one of our souls with joy all the days of our life. Oh Lord, that that would touch, affect everything that we do in our lives, that you would be glorified and magnified through each of us individually, but that you would be glorified through this local church, that its flame would continue burning on the lampstand and that the Lord Jesus would continue walking in our midst. Father in heaven, we pray for another burning lampstand this morning, our brothers and sisters in Verona, Virginia, in Emmanuel Baptist Church, as in a few minutes they will be gathering for their worship service as well. We pray that you would bind their hearts together. We pray for pastors Greg and Andrew as they preside over the service and preach the word, that you would sanctify them, that you would be honored through their prayers, through their singing. We pray for our brother, Pastor Luke Peterson, as he is currently traveling in Costa Rica. We ask that you would bless his ministrations. We pray that you would protect him as he travels home tomorrow, that you would sustain him, bring him back to his family,
We ask for good fruit to be born in the lives of the saints in Costa Rica from the conferences that have been hosted and preached, from the worship services that have been presided over. Oh, Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters at Iglesia Bautista Reformada de Liberia and Pastor Adrian as they have gathered together this morning that they would continue for many years as a temple of your Holy Spirit and that you would strengthen Pastor Adrian as he is caring for his wife who is in poor health, that as he seeks to minister to the spiritual health of his flock as well as to the physical health of his bride, that you would uphold him, O Lord, and that he would look to Christ as the source of his strength and encouragement. We pray for our brother Tim Bullington as this evening, O oh Lord, that the Christ Alone Church Planting Group will constitute into a church. Help him as he prepares to take on the joys and also the responsibilities of the office of elder. Among them, we pray that you would be magnified through the service tonight, that it would be a sweet and joyous time, and that um, that congregation would be fixed firmly upon the rock-solid foundation of Jesus Christ and his gospel, that you would help us to continue to pray for and to support the Christ Alone group. O oh Lord, here in our own congregation, we continue to be humbled by the kindnesses that you give us and to the families in our church. We do continue to pray for and thank you for baby Eden Elizabeth and ask for her continued um, health and growth and that you would bless our sister Kirsten and our brother Nathan as they care for her and adjust to being um, girl parents as well as boy parents. Um, help us to love them during this time. We also pray for the Rioses and the Oars as they expect um, their children, Father Joel and Tony's baby boy and Ethan and Kaylee's baby girl, that you would sustain them through these pregnancies and that both would result in, in peaceful, um, with no complications in them, deliveries, and that we would be able to rejoice with them as their children are, are brought forth into the world. Father, we also think about, along these same lines, the Ash Pregnancy Care Center. We ask that you would continue to uphold them in the work that they do in our community, that you would protect them from any who would seek to um, prohibit them from getting their message out and from helping mothers in crisis situations. We thank you for giving us as a church the resources that you have that we can support them and help them. We pray that you would continue to help Debbie as she serves on the board of directors there, and just that everything that they do as they um, minister to and provide help and counseling for these moms and even dads that come to them, that it would all be illumined by the light of Christ and the gospel. So we pray for them. And oh Lord, on a, on a larger level, we also want to pray as we think about our nation, the new Speaker of the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, as he has recently taken office, that you would bless him, 
We pray that you would uphold him and that he would use the speaker's chair and the speaker's gavel for good, that he would only bring to the floor um, votes for laws, for policy that are just and righteous. Oh, Father, that you would cause him to be a minister for our good and that you would have mercy upon him and upon his family. And now, O Lord, we pray for this time of our service where we come to the preaching of the word. Father, I pray that you would please bless me. I am but a clay vessel, but would you be pleased to show forth your beautiful heavenly treasure through me. I pray that you would help the seed of the word to be sown in all of our hearts, that you would thwart the devices of Satan to steal it from us, and that our Lord Jesus Christ would be magnified through this time. And we ask this, O Lord, in his name, by the Holy Spirit, who together with you we worship and glorify. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we come now to Genesis chapter 7 in our sermon series, so you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Genesis chapter 7, we will begin our passage in verse 1. Please stand with me as I read the scripture. These are the words of God. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. These are the words of God. You may be seated.
Well, I don't know if you heard, but I just got married. I have a wife, and I thank God every day for her. Many of you who are here this morning attended our wedding, and I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. Rose and I got engaged on October the 14th and married on December 31st. By my count, and I'm not great with math, but by my count, there were 92 days from when I proposed to when we made vows to one another. We had 92 days to prepare, to make arrangements for our wedding ceremony. And I know I don't have to explain to any of you married saints how much work that is and what a small window of time that that is, but we just couldn't wait any longer. But those 92 days were all leading up to New Year's Eve 2022. That was a period of preparation building up to a big day, the main event, if you will. Our thoughts and our labors were largely focused on that wedding ceremony and the covenant relationship, which it solemnized. That was a great day of joy that required a lot of work and a lot of prep. Planning a wedding building the ark, not the same thing. But the reason why my mind went there, bear with me, while I was studying this text was that while we had a season of preparation, albeit a short season of preparation that was building up to a particular day, Noah, we have been um, seeing these last several sermons in this series, had a season of preparation, didn't he? A longer season of preparation leading up to a much more somber main event, if you will, when God would begin to send the waters of judgment upon the earth. Noah had, give or take, 120 years of preparation, 120 years where he had a lot of work to do. That was the time frame that he and his family had to construct the massive ark prior to the flood. Our passage today, though, marks the end of that season of preparation. That time is coming to a close. The beginning of the foretold event has come now. The cataclysmic destruction of all life on the earth is at hand here in Genesis 7 verse 1. But Noah had been faithful to God, hadn't he? All during that time prior. Look back at the last verse of chapter 6. Moses records that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. But now construction is finished. Prep is over and it's go time. Noah had performed the work, the task which God had given him. So now listen to what God tells Noah in verse 1 of chapter 7. Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now this echoes a previous statement made of Noah back in chapter 6 verse 9. Here in 7.1, God himself commends Noah for his obedience. God says, you'll notice that he has seen that Noah is righteous. Now, of course, we know God didn't just figure that out. The all-knowing God didn't just now come to the conclusion, oh yeah, I, I guess Noah is a pretty faithful guy. No, of course not. 
God is also not telling Noah that he has now earned his favor. Noah already had favor with God in Christ, right? Rather, God is telling Noah, perhaps we could even say God is encouraging Noah by telling Noah that he has demonstrated his faith in God through his obedience. That obedience was throughout his life. We know that from the previous verses. But a great example of that obedience was the giant ship that Noah had just finished building, right? By seeing the ark, God can tell Noah, I see that you are righteous before me. Now, to be clear, God does not look at Noah's or our good works and justify us because of them. Our salvation is based only upon the obedience of Jesus Christ, which has been wrapped around and imputed to us. There is nothing more that can be added to that righteousness. That righteousness of Christ is our only plea before God. God is pleased with us for Christ's sake, beloved. However, when we are in Christ, as Noah was, God is pleased with the good works we perform in Christ. These are, after all, the very good works which Christ has freed us to do. And in this passage, that is what God is telling Noah that he sees. A similar statement will be made to Abraham, won't it, in chapter 22 of Genesis when he offers Isaac on the altar. Just before he deals the fatal blow, God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, seeing, same word, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Our fathers, Noah and Abraham, proved their faith was genuine because they acted in accord with what they said that they believed. If Noah didn't have faith in God, he wouldn't have even built the ark in the first place. That was a massive undertaking, 120 years worth of an undertaking. But it was one he did in faith. And through Noah's obedience, we are able to see his faith, aren't we? As James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith. How? By my works. Noah and Abraham showed their faith by their works, but lest we believe that their works were why God accepted them, the Apostle Paul reminds us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Salvation is not earned. It is received by faith alone. Obedience flows from salvation, but salvation does not flow from obedience. Noah only stood before God justified because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's the only way anyone ever has or ever will be saved. But a true saving faith, a faith which rests in Christ, will manifest itself through acts of love, through acts of obedience to the law, which others can see. In short, 
beloved, Noah, or God didn't save Noah because he built the ark. Noah obeyed and built the ark because God had already saved him when he believed the gospel. But in this verse, God's giving instructions not just to Noah, but to all of those who are united to Noah, right? So to his family, he commands them all, gives them all the instructions to enter the ark. Well, that is both a command and a gracious invitation, isn't it? Go into the ark and be saved. That is much like the gospel of Christ, is it not? We'll see more about that later. But for now, let's remember, beloved, that if God had not shown mercy to Noah, our entire race would have perished. No more mankind. But God was pleased to keep Noah for himself. And this command to enter the ark ensured that Jesus the promised seed from back in chapter three, verse 15 would come and that all of God's elect, including Noah, would be redeemed by him. God is working here. In verses two and three regard the preservation, not just of human life, but also of animal life. Let's read it again. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Now, I'm not outdoorsy, but I really like animals. I'm a cat guy. God created animals to manifest his glory in them. That's ultimately why everything exists, right? One of the ways that animals do glorify God is through their usefulness to us and also through our just simple enjoyment of them. And God's making provision here for their continuation upon the earth. But you have probably noticed that in verse two, God makes a distinction, doesn't he? He makes a distinction between the clean and the unclean animals. Now, what's that about? Even though the Mosaic covenant is still in the future at this point, obviously, Moses isn't even born yet, we know that God had already commanded men to worship him by offering certain animal sacrifices for their sins. Now, how do we know that? Well, one of the ways we know that is we saw Abel doing that. He offered an animal sacrifice, which God accepted back in chapter four, verse four. Noah and mankind, because of that, would need seven pairs of those clean animals in order to ensure that they had enough for the purpose of worshiping God. If these animals were going to be used in sacrifice, well, then obviously they would need more of them than just one pair each. As one commentator has pointed out, that in addition to that, men would also begin eating these animals after the flood, right? So God is making provision not just for his own worship, but he's also making provision for the continuation of post-flood man. That being said, it's also instructive to us, I think, that God desired to save the unclean animal species as well. 
though they were not to be sacrificed or eaten, he still derived glory from their existence on the earth. And as other men of God have noted, eventually his people would be able to eat even those unclean animals. So because God preserved pigs aboard the ark, we New Covenant saints can feast on the incredible delicacy of bacon. I'm very thankful for that. But beloved, as we read texts like this one, they're really familiar. It, it can kind of get easy for our eyes to get glossed over. We don't really think about what's happening, but I want to challenge and encourage you to think about it in this way as we consider the purpose for these commands that God is giving Noah. God is all wise. He has made provision. God has a plan and a purpose that he is bringing to pass in our midst, just as he had a plan with Noah. The Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. God hasn't messed up any details. God hasn't forgotten anything as we see his wisdom and his plan unfolding with the ark, we can be confident that today he is still working all things together. He sees the end from the beginning because he has decreed the end from the beginning. He has decreed what the end is and how to get there. Now, beloved, we all acknowledge that in many ways we find ourselves in a very dark and uncertain time. But God has made provision for us in Christ. He is working. He promises that it all works together for our good. How will that specifically work out in every situation? Well, that is not for us to know. What's for us to know is that our Father has made a promise to us. We as believers have a source of peace and comfort that no unbeliever can have. That no matter what tragedy, no matter what hardship befalls us, that God intends good for us. Eternal good. How many little things can we look back on in hindsight in our lives and we can kind of see how God was working? We can see good things that God has brought out that were not even a blip on the radar in our minds at the time. Well, God knows better than you and I. Furthermore, he loves you and I and he will not abandon the work which he has begun in each one of us. And like Noah, brothers and sisters, I pray that we would learn to trust him no matter what the circumstances are around us. Because he has begun a work in us. That work began in us when we were first saved, when his spirit was poured out upon us and the old passed away and the new came in. That passing from old to new, from darkness 
to light, from death to life. That is a common theme that repeats in the Bible. To begin seeing it, we don't need to look any further than verse 4. Let's read that again. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. Question. How long did it take God to make heaven and earth? Six days, followed by the holy Sabbath of rest. So total, say, of seven days. That's the first week. That's the creation week, seven days. But here, Moses records another week, a decreation week, if you will, because this week is the final week of preparation before God, in a manner of speaking, destroys the old creation. God says to Noah that in seven days, I will blot out much of what I have made. Not because he had made it badly, of course, right? But because of human evil and sin, Solomon tells us that God created man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So it's because of the increasing corruption that the Lord saw fit to bring a kind of reversal to the created order. He created the world in seven days, and now he tells Noah that after seven days, he's going to wipe it away. That's heavy. In fact, this is so closely related, I'm going to break with normal practice and have you jump down to verse 10 where the text says, and after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. The end of this decreation week is marked by God undoing what he did all the way back in chapter one, verses nine and 10, where he separated the waters from the land. But now, to cleanse the earth of this evil, he allows the waters to once again overwhelm the earth's surface. He's in a sense freeing the water from the barrier that he had placed it behind, decreation. But that's not the only thing of interest in these verses. Now go back to verse four and notice how long God has determined for the rain to pour down. 40 days and 40 nights. Now that sounds familiar too, doesn't it? Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Elijah journeying to Mount Horeb for 40 days. The Lord Jesus fasting and being tempted by Satan for 40 days. Don't miss this, beloved. This number has significance when God uses it in such a way in the scripture. Also consider how all of those examples which I just gave you involve water, don't they? Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea before the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and entering into the promised land. 
What about with Elijah? Well, after he defeated the prophets of Baal, his prayer relieved a drought by causing it to rain upon the land of Israel. And our Lord Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John prior to his testing in the wilderness and the beginning of his public ministry. So there is a kind of correspondence, maybe, you could say in the Bible, these themes between these elements of water in a period of 40 days or 40 years. There's a connection between those things and a kind of entering into new creation, entering into the presence of God, you could say. After all, Israel's inheritance in Canaan was a type of the world to come, right? God dwelt among his people there in the tabernacle and later in the temple in a special way. Similarly to that, Elijah went to the wilderness and after his 40 days, he encountered God on the mountain when he spoke to him in the still small voice. So why does all that help us understand Genesis 7-4? Well, because in this story, God is wiping away the old creation through water. He is preserving Noah through those 40 days on board the ark. And then when it's all over, what happens? Noah and his family will emerge to receive a kind of new earth, a world that has been washed and renewed and purified by God. God will even enter into covenant with Noah. That fresh post-flood world serves as a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, which we will inherit when Jesus returns for us. When the wicked are wiped away in judgment, Christ's kingdom will spread from shore to shore. And after Christ's baptism, and his 40 days, that's what he begins preaching. That's significant. Listen to what Christ says at the conclusion of that time. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That message is as true today as it was then, friend. Christ will establish his kingdom on the earth. The world will be filled with the glory of God, and that is our hope as Christians. But friend, if you are not a believer in Christ, you will not inherit the new earth where righteousness dwells. You will suffer eternal flame with Satan and his demons. But here the gospel. You are a sinner deserving wrath, but Christ came to die for sinners. He satisfied the wrath of God for sin upon the cross, and he arose again as the first fruits of the resurrection and of the new creation. Turn to him. He is not dead. He is alive. And he stands with his arms open wide, ready to receive any and all who turn to him. Embrace 
Christ, needy sinners, rely upon his perfect righteousness as your acceptance with God, because that is the only righteousness that God will accept. Make no mistake, friend, you have nothing to offer Christ. But Christ offers you eternal life as a free gift. Only forsake your sins and fly to him this morning. He is your refuge from the day when God will judge this world again, but not with water, but with fire. Those in Christ will be saved, just like Noah and his family were saved in the ark. Let's keep reading verses five through seven. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Now let's keep reading the verses eight and nine. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. Now it actually may almost seem repetitive for the continued reminder from our author, Moses, that Noah obeyed the Lord. But John Calvin observed that such repetition is actually helpful because it reminds the reader that such obedience was just Noah's regular manner of life. Listen to how Calvin puts it. Moses commends Noah's uniform tenor of obedience in keeping all God's commandments, as if he would say that in whatever particular it pleased God to try his obedience, he always remained constant. Now, God has given many commands to Noah the last several weeks that we have seen, that Pastor Scott has been preaching, right? And then what we have seen this morning in 7, 1 through 10. Build an ark, Build it out of this kind of wood. Build it these dimensions. Waterproof it. Fill it with animals. Seven pairs of clean ones, only one pair of the unclean ones. Go into the ark and over and over again, what is Noah commended for? His obedience to God's commandments. Noah loved God's commandments. So did the psalmist when he prayed, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Now, church, would anyone really charge Noah with legalism for carefully following God's instructions, for insisting that the ark be made of gopher wood, not another kind of wood, for insisting that it be covered with pitch. Of course no one would say that. 
We understand that disobedience to those commands of God would have meant the sinking of the ark and that all on board would have perished. But do we recognize and understand that all sin is disobedience to God? And do we recognize, as the great Puritan John Owen did, that all sin is deadly and destructive? Brothers and sisters, it is not legalism for us to obey God's commands. It is not legalism for us to require obedience to God's commands. Legalism is when someone adds to God's commands, like the Pharisees did. But Jesus has freed us to obey God's law. Jesus also see, it says that undermining God's law displeases God. Christ teaches, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, my brothers and sisters, where do we find God's commands to us? in the Holy Scriptures. And not only that, but we know that His moral law has been written on our very hearts. Obeying God's law is not slavery. It is freedom. John says that by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Beloved, being in church to worship our resurrected Savior every Lord's Day, unless providentially hindered, that is not a burden. It is a delight. It is not a man-made traditions that your pastors have made up and are trying to put a yoke on you. God is the one who commands all of us to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. Being faithful to your wife, beloved. Honoring your parents, those aren't burdens. Christ has freed us, equipped us, empowered us by his spirit to do these things. And he has given us pastors to shepherd us in these ways. Pastors who love us and our fellow members to encourage us as we all seek to attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, as the Apostle Paul teaches us. The Holy Spirit was clearly at work in Noah. But the Spirit empowers all of God's elect to live righteously. Noah was not special in that regard. The same Spirit that was at work in Noah's life is at work in all of our lives. 
God's people will grow in holiness. That marks true Christians. But we know, we know that on this side of eternity, we still sin. Noah sinned. We will see Noah drunk later on in Genesis. But as Calvin said, the overall tenor of his life was one of obedience. But it wasn't that obedience that saved him. It was Christ's obedience that saved him. Noah was saved because he, is, he had already fled for refuge into the ark of Christ. And God had credited the merits of that Messiah who hadn't even come yet from when Noah was living, but he credited the merits of that Messiah, that coming seed of the woman, to Noah. Hebrews eleven seven says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became of an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. It's been said before that we are great sinners, but Jesus is a greater Savior. So take comfort in that this morning, brothers and sisters. Noah had his eyes on Jesus as he worked on that ark project. That was a project that took around 120 years. Moses tells us in verse 6 that Noah had reached his 600th year on earth by the time that the flood came, reminding us of God's patience prior to bringing his wrath to bear. This patience was certainly for the benefit of Noah's family, who you'll notice in verse 7, escape the flood by entering the ark, just as we escape judgment by entering into Christ. And God's patience continues today, just as it did then, brethren, Judgment is coming, but God will not bring that judgment until he has saved the very last of his elect and not a second sooner. All of his people will be saved. They will all be brought into the ark of Jesus. Peter assures us of this when he writes, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's not a reason to kick back and disregard evangelism. It's one of the burning embers which light the fire of evangelism. Jesus says to his church, my people are out there. Go and bring them into the ark. Jesus has entrusted his church with this precious message. We possess the good news that the Spirit will use to save his people. So let's proclaim it to our family and friends. 
Proclaim it on Facebook even. Proclaim it down on Jefferson Avenue. Let the world know that Jesus saves sinners and that all are called to receive him as their king. That Christ is the only hope of a dying world. Entering the ark, I think it's pretty obvious by this point, was not optional if you wanted to escape the flood. So it is with Christ. Christ says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Now, church, as we prepare to enter a time of prayer and reflection, I want to exhort you all to keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. Noah did that for 120 years. And and that's just talking about the the construction of the ark. He was 600, remember, by the time the flood came. That was a long season. Now, I don't know if Noah ever felt discouraged. The scripture doesn't speak in those kinds of details here, but I know that I probably would have. But when God's people feel that they are about to fall, Christ catches them. Noah, while building that massive ship, he also preached for 120 years. He's called a herald of righteousness in the New Testament. He preached for over a century to people who didn't want to hear him, people who mocked him, people who wanted no part of repentance. But Christ sustained Noah to that day when the waters came. And Christ will sustain you, brother or sister. Christ will sustain us as this church sails through an uncertain and stormy sea. Christ will sustain you as you care for a sick loved one. Christ will sustain you as you repent of that sin that you hate so much. Christ will sustain you as you continually come to him, asking him to save a lost friend, a lost spouse, a lost family member. Christ isn't far away. Christ is near to you. But how can I keep my eyes on Christ? That's not just a a sentimental statement. No, there are real ways that we can do that. But they are very ordinary ways. Commune with him in prayer. Deeply study and ponder his word. Meditate on his glories and excellencies. Come to church. Be with his people. Have his word ministered to you. Have him feed you, nourish you through the bread and the wine of the supper. He's not hiding from you. He loves you and he is powerful. These are not fancy things. These aren't new things, creative things. This is nothing that any of us have come up with. These are just the simple and yet extraordinary, ordinary means of grace. God has called us all to glorify and to enjoy him forever. 
He has a purpose for all of our lives. Unlike Noah, he won't ask us to build an ark. But like Noah, he will give us everything we need to do what he has called us to. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, as we consider your holiness, the just judgment that you will bring upon sin, we know that had you left us to our own devices, we would all be undone, condemned in your sight, would want no part of you, but you have lavished mercy upon us. You have given us to Christ, and he is our refuge from the wrath to come. He is our brother who tenderly loves us. He calls us his friends. Oh, may we never neglect drawing near to him. May we never consider his commands to us to be a burden. May we never be tempted to believe the devil's lies that some of our sins are so great that he won't forgive us, that his blood has not atoned. Oh, Father, we lift our eyes to Christ, our church's King. May we not be like the Israelites in 1 Samuel who were not satisfied with an invisible king. Oh, Lord, help us to look to Christ knowing that one day our faith will be sight, that he will return for us, his beloved, that he will bring us, his people, like Joshua, into a new and better promised land, new heavens, a new earth where righteousness dwells. Oh, hasten that day, Holy Father. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Help us to trust you as Noah trusted you, that you would still our anxieties, the stormy seas that perhaps are even billowing in our own hearts. Glorify yourself among us this day. O oh, Holy Father, we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.